Let's pray. God, we live in a world where institutions exist to cause us fear. People are on the news, on the television, on the radio, in print, causing us fear. We have other countries that are causing us fear. We have a pandemic that is causing us fear. And God, you tell us to fear not. You tell us to put our trust in you. God, help us to do that. I pray that you would uh, use this time that we look into your word and we look at this message. God, and you would speak to us in a way that all of us understand in ways that, that are clear to us that you truly mean it when you tell us to fear not because you are on our side. So God, we just give this time to you and pray that it would be to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God says to fear not. Over and over and over, God says to fear not. And yet we do. We, 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 we're all afraid. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of situations and circumstances. We're afraid of the unknown. And now we've, we've got this pandemic thing out there that's telling all of us we had better be afraid. We've got people who are using the pandemic to make sure that we're afraid. We're not sure what to believe. And, and so for some of us, it just becomes absolutely paralyzing. And what it all contributes to is, is that one fear that, that all of us seem to share, and that's the fear of death. Not necessarily if you're a child of God, you don't fear being dead. But there's that fear of death. How's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And we've got a world around us that just lifts that up and shakes it out on us all the time. Today we're going to take a look at a young man, a young man named David. And if you grew up in Sunday schools or you've been around the church very long at all, you know this passage. It's David and the giant Goliath. We're going to take a look at a young man that trampled all over any thought of fear, he stepped out in faith and he trampled all over it, starting with the fear of defeat, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of humiliation or the fear of being too young, and finally the fear of death. And, and what we learn is that the very same God who was with David on this day in history is the God who promises to be with you and I. The Bible tells us in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can stand against us? It's a pretty simple statement. It's a question, which means we've got to choose whether we believe it or whether we don't. But if God is for you, who can stand against you? In David's mind, no one and no thing. And yet we still fear. Think about that for a moment. When, when we're followers of Jesus who are living our lives for him, then we can know and we can trust that God's promise is that God is in us and with us and for us. Sometimes, though, even, even when we know that God is on our side, even when we believe it, the voice of the enemy, whether it's, whether it's the Jezebel spirit like we talked about last week or some giant fear that seems to be looming in front of us so large that we're paralyzed, it prevents us from doing anything. But remember, when, when your fear is screaming at you the loudest, God wants to instill in you a living faith in him. And sometimes it's that fear that drives us to believe because we've got nothing else that we can do. What we're going to see with David is that he wasn't led by his fear. David was led by his faith in God. 
So we're going to look at David and Goliath. I've heard sermons about this before, and, and sometimes you hear him talk about the uh, facing your giants or the, the boy and the giant or all of those things. I think when we really look at this passage, it's about God and Goliath. David just happens to be God's emissary, God's representative on earth. But you've got to understand that before David showed up on this day, he was a young man and he had already lived a very full lifetime of faith-instilling events prior to God ever bringing him before Goliath. First of all, when, when David was young, the prophet Samuel came to his father Jesse and he said that, I, I need to meet your boys because I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. Saul, who we'll meet in a little bit, is still the king. So Jesse begins to parade his front, uh, sons in front of Samuel. And, and the first one that comes is the oldest boy. His name is Eliab. And he comes up in the, in the passages quite a bit. And Samuel looks at Eliab and he goes, he's got to be it. This has got to be the next king of Israel. He looks like a king. Everything about him is kingly. Eliab has got to be the man. And in verse 7 of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, God says, I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the heart, on the outward appearance. Excuse me, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel ends up moving down all of these brothers, seven of them in total. And finally he says, aren't, aren't there any more? And Jesse says, well, my youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. Well, bring him to me. And so they bring Young David in to meet Samuel, and upon meeting David, the Bible says now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. Remember that phrase, it comes up again later. And he was handsome, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Bible says that David's entire life, he was filled and led by the Holy Spirit, despite the bad things that he did. But you've got to imagine that this event was a little bit like another person in the Old Testament, Joseph. Here's young David in front of all of his brothers, and what's at stake is nothing less than becoming the next God-appointed king of Israel. All of those brothers who thought they had a lot more qualification, age to begin with, experience in battle, who knows what. All of them are passed over, just like Joseph seemed that God passed over all of his brothers. And there's some jealousy, there's some enmity there, there's some, some bad feelings that go on. But what happens is in Acts 13.22, it records God is saying about David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. You want to be someone after God's own heart, it isn't going to be perfect. Have a heart that seeks after God. Have a heart that cares about the things and the people that God cares about. Have a heart that is always looking to what it is that God is calling you to do. So this whole scene opens up with young David. He's a shepherd. He's a kid. He's, maybe he's a teenager. And his dad calls him and he says, go bring food to your brothers. And the reason he had to do that was when you were in an army back then, the army didn't have a way of feeding everyone. And so the family back home would make sure that there was food and extra clothes and whatever it was that the soldiers needed. And some of these battles went on a very long time. And so David's job then was to go bring food to the brothers. He has three of his brothers, the Bible said. So at this point, there's four of them counting David that are there. And when he gets there, he realizes that these guys who he looks up to, these guys who are supposed to be the army of God protecting Israel are terrified. If you've got your Bible, go to 1 Samuel, starting in 17, verse 1. 
So here's the stage. The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. You shouldn't know what any of those things mean. It doesn't matter. What matters is it's a real place. In fact, the writer pinpoints exactly where this battle happened. It wasn't like, yeah, there was a big war one day. No, this event happened right here. You can go back to an ancient map and find that exact spot, that exact valley. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, in the valley of Elah uh, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Uh, we've been to some of these places in Israel. The mountains aren't like the Rockies. The mountains are like big Mount Toms. But the valleys are pretty impressive. They're wide. They're flat. You can just imagine how it is that two huge ancient armies could have gathered there getting ready to go to war. Verse 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now, a champion was something that they used in the old days to help fight battles and decide wars. Each, each side would have a champion. Typically it was the king, but not always. And this continued on for centuries. And oftentimes what the, the, the leading generals would do is they'd send the, the champions out and they would have a one-on-one battle. And the winner between the champions decided the war for everybody and that allowed an army to not lose so many men. The champion for the Philistines was Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Anybody have any idea how tall that is? Nine feet, nine inches. A center in the NBA, maybe seven two. And you put him next to someone who's five feet tall, and he's towering over that person by this. Well, this would be like the center of the NBA being dwarfed by Goliath. Nine feet, nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels. His chain mail armor weighed 126 pounds. The helmets that the Philistines wore, because we've seen them, we've, we've found some. They completely covered the head. They flared down at the shoulder, and there's an opening right between the eyes where they can see, and their vision doesn't get interrupted. This guy was terrifying by his size, but then the way he was dressed was that much more so. He had bronze armor on his legs and javelin, a javelin of, of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, probably somewhere between 16 and 18 feet long, twice as long as he was tall. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. Can you imagine throwing an 18-foot spear with a 15-foot, 18-inch tip on it anywhere? This is what Goliath of Gath took into battle. And the shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Right there we know this is going to be interesting. Goliath is arrogant. Who knows how many battles he's won? These guys in the army probably owe him their lives because he goes out and takes care of it, and they don't have to pick up a sword. And what he comes out and asks for is a man. Choose a man for yourselves. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. 
When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They heard what he said and they believed him. He was huge and terrifying. Now it talks about David is there with his three oldest, uh, old, oldest sons of Jesse. So four of them are there. And it goes on and talks about the names of the three other sons. Verse 14, David was the youngest. And the three eldest followed Saul. What we find out is it's really important who you choose to follow. The three eldest brothers who knew battle, who knew war, they followed the king. David, the young son, he followed God. And so there's all of these little phrases in the Bible that we just need to make sure that we don't miss. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Why 40 days? 40 days, and the number 40 in the Bible is the number of testing. 40 days in the wilderness. 40, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. 40, 40, 40. 40 days he came out and taunted the Israelite army. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. No, they weren't. They were in the valley afraid of a fight. They didn't want to fight because in order to have a fight, either they had to go after the whole army and get past Goliath, or they had to send someone out and there was nobody who volunteered to take on Goliath. They weren't fighting. There was no battle going on. And so dad says, go ahead, take, take this food to your brothers. And David rose early and he went out and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. He ran all the way up to the front. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by, uh, came by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled for him and were much afraid. And, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this guy? They're talking about the king's going to give you anything you want if you take him out. But none of us are going to. David said to the man who stood by him in verse 26, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the uh, reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right there, David draws a new battle line. This isn't a war between armies. This is a war between God and the man who would defy God. And David does what Saul didn't do. David did what nobody else in the army did. Recognize this as a spiritual battle. Not a physical battle because they were afraid they'd lose the physical battle. But David didn't see it the way everyone else did. Verse 28, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. His younger brother is out here talking smart like all the rest of us should be talking. Whom have you, uh, uh, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's dismissing David like, we don't even give you responsibility for a whole flock. You just got a few you've got to deal with. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. No, he didn't. Furthermore, his brother doesn't know him because that evil isn't in his heart. Remember what God says in, in Acts thirteen twenty two: For in David I find a man after my own heart. God's heart isn't evil. David's heart isn't evil. But his brother's jealous. So verse 32, David says to King Saul, so you've got to picture this, David young guy, maybe 13 years old, who's already been anointed the next king of Israel, goes up to King Saul, much taller. He's the one who should have been fighting Goliath, who is the current king of Israel. 
And he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Here's the thing. The next king is doing as a boy what the current king should have done. But the current king wouldn't do it because he was afraid. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against him to fight with him. For you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. He's already been anointed the next king, but he understands himself as a servant. He used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. And I struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And he arose against me. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Caught him by the the fur under his throat and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And young David brings a new challenge to the front. The new challenge is that this battle isn't about an army fighting an army. This is about one man who's defying the army of the living God. He's reminding Saul that we are chosen people. David gives his credentials. And he says, I'm ready for this because I've taken down a bear. I've taken down a lion. And and what was at stake? One of the animals from my flock. But I didn't back down, and with my bare hands, I killed those animals. It's got to be one of these, you got to be kidding me moments. Saul's looking at him going, I've never done anything like that. Who are you? And David says it not as though he's bragging. He's just simply stating it as fact, because God will deliver this Philistine just like those animals. And so after Samuel anointed David king, David is living every day of his life with the Holy Spirit active and present with him. Every moment of every day, David was totally prepared for what he was volunteering to do on the battlefield that day. And he was totally prepared because God had prepared him. David didn't have a sudden upfilling of of, uh, enthusiasm as a kid. He showed up with a heart and a head full of faith. David knew that God can do anything he desires. David didn't see the confrontation the way the rest of the army did. He didn't see it the way that Saul did. David looked at this Philistine and said, you know what? He's defying God's army. And all I can see is all that God can do. You guys see what you can't do. David saw it through God's eyes, the eyes of possibility, the eyes of opportunity. And the soldiers, they just saw it through the eyes that feared death. See, in in David's mind... This battle already belonged to the Lord. And so he was willing to go and fight it. When David showed up in the military camp like a boy, he showed King Saul and everybody else there that there was one person there that was going to lead like a king. A 13-year-old boy says, it isn't about me. It's about the God that I serve. A, A king with the kind of heart that God loves. So despite the sin that happens later in David's life, we're told earlier that the Holy Spirit was with him, that it never left him. That God's Holy Spirit was with David all the time, and David knew it because God had proved himself faithful. 1 Samuel 17, verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Knock yourself out. Have at it. And Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail because that's what a soldier wore. But David wasn't a soldier. David was a shepherd boy. 
And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he hadn't tested him. And David said to Saul, I can't go with these for I've not tested them. So David put them off. They're all defensive things. And David's going, God is my defense. I can't move in this stuff. It's going to slow me down. I can't do what I need to do. So he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. So I did something. I went to everybody's favorite online store. I bought a sling. Turns out at first service, we learned I'm no good at it. They mostly looked like this. Three-foot leather straps with a pouch at the end. Pretty simple device, actually. Not a whole lot to it. However, unbelievably effective and dangerous in the hands of someone who knows how to use it. I read that there was archers in every army, but... Those that carried the sling were actually more valuable because there was more distance from one of these things. They could throw a sling accurately a quarter of a mile. I read that they could hit something the size of a human hair at 100 yards, the ones who were the best. That's like standing on the goal line of one end of a football field, looking to the goal line of another end of the, the other end of the football field, picking out a blade of grass and hitting it with a stone from the sling. They go 100 miles an hour. If you can imagine a rock, a one-pound stone about the size of a billiard ball or a tennis ball or this little ball, a hundred miles an hour coming out from the sling of someone who knew what he was doing, hit with the same impact force that a 44 Magnum handgun shell hits. There's no way you can duplicate that with a bow and arrow. Not the distance, not the accuracy, not the lethal force that it carried with them. Most slingers I read through in an underhand motion, we kind of always see them doing like this. But in the ancient days, they, they threw it in, a, in an underhand motion. And, and I thought, how in the world do you get the thing going 100 miles an hour? Well, with a three-foot help, you ever tried to hit a fast-pitch softball thrown by someone who knows what they're doing? That thing screams at you like crazy. These guys could take a sling and with incredible accuracy and incredible control... They could hit a target a quarter of a mile away or hit something the size of a blade of grass or a human hair at 100 yards. So I decided that would be kind of fun. Let's try it. Then at first service, I had people saying, please don't. But we're going to try it. Okay, this is a very soft foam ball. If by chance I'm really bad and it hits you, I'm sorry, number one, and it shouldn't hurt too much, okay? So they would do one wind-up. We would think that they do this, right? That's kind of what we see or imagine, but they didn't. That's not what they did. Someone who actually understood how to throw a sling, one wind up and they'd let go. Right down the aisle. Perfect. I'm learning. Let's try it again, shall we? A one pound stone. So there was people who actually milled the stones. And so the, the guys who carried the slings had a constant supply of stones that fit, that gave them the same trajectory, the same weight, the same aerodynamics. And so someone who had a sling, it didn't matter how he reloaded, he reloaded with the, reloaded with the same ammunition. 100 miles an hour, a quarter of a mile away, with deadly accuracy. Oh, I quit. That was a lot better than first service. First Samuel 17, 41. David takes his sling... And he stops and he gets 
five stones from the river. You might want to ask, why in the world did he pick up five stones if David's so confident? What's the big deal? Well, there's one other thing. See, Jesse has four sons now in the battle. Uh, Eliab, the oldest, the next two, and, and David. But the Bible also says that Goliath had three giant brothers in the Philistine army. Four giant brothers in the Philistine army. So there was five giants in the Philistine army ranks. And my guess is that, and I read as much as I could read about it, I think David said, you know what, when I go, when I, when I take this one stone of Goliath, his brothers may very well charge, and I need to make sure i got four more rocks for the four more brothers. You talk about confidence in God's ability, not in his slingshot ability. See, God prepared David for this moment over the course of years. He gave him confidence, but he also instilled faith, just like God prepares us for the moments. When fear might overtake us and turn our trust to hope and trust and hope away from him. Because God has proved himself faithful and he has grown our faith in him through the things that he's brought us through. See, God starts with small things and allows us to learn to trust him. David didn't start by having to kill a bear. He didn't start by having to kill a lion. David started with little things that God proved faithful and David grew confident in God. And what God does is that he gives us larger challenges and greater opportunities to trust him. And so when David walked out to face Goliath, he was confident in God, not confident in his slingshot abilities. David knew that God was with him. He trusted God because God had proved himself trustworthy in David's past. And God has done the very same thing for you and I. See, God has a perfect track record of proving himself trustworthy. If you look back in your past... I don't care how rough your life feels right now. If you look back in your past, if you get rid of the word coincidence, and if you get rid of the word good luck, and you insert God did, God has been building faith in you throughout your life. Doesn't mean everything's been good. Doesn't mean everything was easy. But God has shown up and shown you over and over in your life that he is faithful and that he can be trusted. And that's what David understood Ultimately, ultimately, David had a problem because he was far from perfect. But this day, he trusted God perfectly. So on the day that he picks these five stones, his sling is in his hand. He approached the Philistine, which none of the other people in the army would be willing to do. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So Goliath of Gath has a huge shield and he has a man carrying it. And so it's actually the shield between Goliath and David. Goliath doesn't even come out on his own to meet this kid with the sling. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Which makes you wonder what Goliath looked like. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The very same gods that Jezebel had, had cursed Elijah with. Gods that are proven over and over not to be in existence, to have no teeth whatsoever. But Goliath curses David, and David knows this is a spiritual battle, and God has already won it. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give the flesh, your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That phrase, Lord of hosts, means the Lord of the angel armies of heaven. Goliath didn't stand a chance. 
he had scared those soldiers for 40 days straight. And this kid shows up and he says, we've got an army of heaven around us like you can't even imagine. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David isn't fighting for himself. He isn't fighting his arm, for his army. He is fighting for the God of Israel. He says he's going to cut off Goliath's head. And yet the Bible tells us David walks forward and didn't even carry a sword. And he goes on and he says that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle, of, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the Philistine arose, and he came, and he drew near to meet David. But David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David is so confident in what God is about to do that he runs to the giant. The giant begins to move forward. David runs to the giant with nothing more than a sling and five stones. And David put his hand in his bag. And he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face in the ground. That small opening about the size of a tennis ball, that small opening in the helmet, just about exactly the size of the stone that David threw, hit its mark. I've always thought it was interesting because if Goliath is running and David is running and David throws a stone and it hits Goliath in the forehead, which way is he going to fall? Think physics. Isn't he going to fall backwards most likely? And yet the Bible says that he falls forward. And I have to believe that that is God sending a message. He's not for me. His face can't even look upon me. When the Holy Spirit is present in the person of David, Goliath fell flat on his face. But the battle wasn't over. David had hit him, and he had fallen. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. That David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, God prepares us for those moments way ahead of time. It isn't that suddenly you're going to have an outpouring of faith that's enough for whatever your fear puts up against you. David had been prepared for his whole life, and God had proved himself trustworthy. Now, as you go on in the David story, David has moments where he proves himself to be far from perfect as a man and had moments where he was most ungodly. He chased after Goliath, but he also chased after Bathsheba. David was the most celebrated military leader in Israel's history, but he couldn't control his own family. The Bible says he had at least eight wives and hundreds, if not a thousand or more concubines. And before it was done, he was a murderer as well, but through it all, David's heart was just faithful to one God. And God and his Holy Spirit never left David. David saw God at work over and over and over. In fact, through all of the suffering through his heartache, through his sin, through his military victories, through his years as a shepherd, God showing himself faithful, David ended up writing 73 of the Psalms. Those those books and chapters that give us courage and strength and hope when we just absolutely have nothing. The most famous in the world, the 23rd Psalm, came from David's time as a shepherd, knowing God's faithfulness. 
Whatever you might be facing, it might feel like a giant fear. Whatever it feels like, it's just too big for you to conquer on your own. It's a perfect opportunity to give that fear and the battle in your mind that goes with it over to God. As a believer in Jesus, your battle already belongs to the Lord. God can do far more in the most dire circumstances in your life than you can do in the best. Today in our world, we don't encounter giants that scare us. It isn't nine foot, nine inch tall monsters. Our giants are a bit less dramatic, but no less frightening. We face giants like job loss, transitions, unemployment, financial troubles, health problems, um, hearing those awful words from the doctor that some people have to hear. Maybe it's marriage problems or family problems or any one of the the very real, very difficult situations that we find ourselves in, like addictions that we can't break or bills that we can't pay or guilt that we can't move beyond or insecurities that crush us from our mind in. Or maybe it's just that we worry about an unknown future that's beyond our control. That's why next week our last topic is going to be looking at Gideon, that we may not know the future that's ahead of us, but God holds our future and God holds us. There's a million things that we can be afraid of. The lesson we get from David is that while we'll never be perfect and while we walk on this earth, just like David, sin will be ever, ever present in our lives. But David treasured God's power. David treasured God's promises in his heart. And David knew that when God was for him, there was no one and no thing, not even a giant like Goliath, that could prevail against him, not because of who David was but because of who God is. So your fear is really an opportunity for you to realize that God can do for you what you cannot even attempt to do for yourself. The only thing Saul knew how to do with David was to put his armor on him and hope the kid didn't die right away. So he did what he knew. He put his armor on and David said, this isn't going to work for me. Can't do it. And so God gives us what we need. It's in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. It's called the full armor of God. And it's modeled after a soldier's battle uniform. It's all the things that we need to do with God on our side to combat our greatest fears. We've got everything that we need to live to truly live in faith like David did. But like David, we have to trust God. Trust that God is for us. Trust that God will show up when we're willing to go. Trust that God will do for us what God has done for believers throughout history. And that's to be for us when it might even feel like the world is against us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage about David. He goes on to live quite an amazing life. But God, the the thing that is most significant is that statement from you in Acts that here's a man after my own heart. God's heart, uh, David's heart wasn't always what we might have expected from him. But he was always focused on you. His heart sought to do your will. God, help us to be people who are like David that way. We know we're not perfect. We know that on our own we're not good enough. We're not strong enough or smart enough or, or spiritual enough. But God, give us hearts like David that love you and that always seek to find you and to serve you and to love you. God, thank you that you have a perfect track record of faithfulness to your people. 
In Jesus' name, amen.